Hi, I'm Laura Allen. And I'm Liv Austin. And between us, we are a songwriter, actor, singer, producer, and the hosts of My Amazing Mess, a podcast where we talk to creatives who are right in the middle of developing their own unique careers. They are totally honest with us about what it takes to pursue their dream job, the exciting highs, the disheartening lows, and the amazing mess that is everything in between. Hi everyone, it's Laura here. We hope you're keeping safe and well wherever you are in the world and we hope you're staying home and enjoying listening to our podcast and of course many others, so thanks so much for checking in. As we're not able to record any more of the episodes for Series 2 because of what's going on at the moment, we thought we'd take you back through the archives of Series 1. This week we're going to give you a taster of two episodes, starting with our very first interview with Dylan Myersko harris a music manager. Dylan spoke so openly about what life is really like behind the scenes of the music industry and where he gets his love for music and discovering new talent. If you like the talk and want to hear the full episode, they're all still available wherever you get your podcasts. So I was working for Under the Apple Tree when I was in sixth form, helping on the live music sessions. Uh, but when I finished sixth form, I decided to defer a university placement actually three years in a row. And uh, I worked different jobs, none of them related to music at all, uh, in between traveling. So I got to work at a, a Oxford University College, Hartford College. Uh, I worked at a biomedical science company in, in Oxford Science Park. Uh, and so I worked a, a few odd jobs, which all obviously had career paths, but knowing music and for me, when you when you get to know the the music industry and you see the kind of the, the life and the experiences you get from it, it, it was always going to be music for me. Uh, so I, when I had finished my traveling and thought I wanted to be back and start establishing a career, uh, my aim was just always to move up to London and get properly involved in the music industry. Uh, it wasn't forced from my family at all, <laughs> but I think just with you know music in my house every single day, it was probably the nat- the natural path yeah. to to go down. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? As well, like travel, such a thing. I remember when I was auditioning for drama school, they always would their face would light up if someone would say, "I travelled this year" or something. So you you can learn like you can learn so much about actually this is I've seen the world now. I'm definitely doing the music thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think in terms of especially with managing artists for for all its different things, it can be challenging at times and I th- I think probably traveling to some pretty remote place in the world and and dealing with stresses on that side puts it into perspective dealing with you know a person to person manager relationship is I think that's held me in good stead over studying philosophy which is what I was going to do at university so probably gave me a lot more practical experience yeah wow and I think that um just really making sure that you have a love for music has probably played a big part because I think a manager, especially, maybe similar to being an agent for a, for an actor, you can come into it in so many different ways because it's not really like, oh, you want to be a manager. OK, so you have to go to this school. You have to do this degree. Like it's people come into it from all sorts of different, um, you know, ways of, of coming into the music industry. So uh, do you feel like your love for music is, is kind of the the basis for for why you're doing it absolutely and yeah you're dead right as well there isn't any set way of being uh, an artist manager at all uh, there isn't a guidebook or anything the, the biggest thing about it i think is is how you deal with personalities uh but that carried with the fact that i mean for me personally whoever i manage i have to believe in their music you know and that has to be one of the core driving forces but yeah absolutely F- for me uh, i have a few kind of what i call core passions you know the ones that makes you want to get out of bed and makes you happy when you get back into bed at, at the night time. And music is probably my number one. 
Uh, I've had a love for music since I can remember. And I've, for me, when you have your best day in any industry that you're working in, your best day, you have to come back and, and it's a feeling you can't really word, but you, you just feel good. You feel happy. And for me, that is what I work on in music. If it's one of my acts doing an absolute standout show or me uncovering a new gem or, or just the people that you get to meet in the industry. Uh, for me coming home after I've had a day like that, if it's my best day in any role that I could be in any industry for me, it was always going to be music. Yeah. For you, I don't want to say ages necessarily, but you're relatively young in the industry, would you yeah, say? Yeah. So in terms of working in the industry, if I'm counting from... 19 because uh, I worked on a couple of festivals when I was traveling so I guess that counts uh, so for me it's been five years uh, growing up my whole 24 years of life but for working solidly in music it's been five years in total but probably about two and a half three full-time completely focused solidly yeah because I think that's it's so different in other industries when you're if you're in an office job or something like that I don't know much about that world but you want to somehow climb a ladder quite quickly in those sorts of things, but in anything creative, things take so much time. So do you do you kind of feel like you're still learning loads or do you feel like you've grown up with so much of it that you're kind of jumping right in? Uh, you learn something new pretty much every single week you work in it. I think one of the best things that I enjoy about working in music, which is obviously a uh, creative industry, is it's so variable every single day in it. And when you're working in an industry that is based on it being subjective, uh, obviously, you know, not every single person likes every single song. Uh, it means that the variables that come from it mean, yeah, you learn something new pretty much day on day. Uh, I, I, one of the things I find the most uh, interesting about music is there isn't any set way of doing it. Um, you, you obviously see the, the crops of the kind of mainstream talent that seem to follow a mold, but really... Uh, it's it's different for every single musician and uh, every single person's music has a different reaction on every single different person. Uh, that means that, yeah, it, you can't know everything ever. Uh, the three of us could listen to 100,000 albums. We could try and predict who is going to listen to them and how big they're going to go. And we'd end up being probably about, I'd say, at least 50 percent wrong. Uh, it's always great, you know, when you see artists and certain songs that you see breaking that can take people to festivals or get on radio play, where if you got played kind of individually in your room one of your mates played it you might think it would never go anywhere and I think that's kind of the beauty of working in music that you kind of can't know at all uh, and and it's you're constantly growing with it yeah and that's that's maybe the interesting thing about um, that age uh, doesn't necessarily matter as much because you can obviously you can be experienced to a degree but nobody actually knows what's going to happen in this industry nobody mm. can tell you okay it's going to be like this and then this year we will do that you can just make plans and, and try and do the best you can, but you actually cannot guess the outcome of it. At all, yeah. I, I think also, we'll use you as an example, Liv, but I think if you probably tried to plan your 2018 on January 1st, how do you think it's going to go? You could probably plot it out month by month and you get to the, the end of the year and it wouldn't have been anywhere close. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that's great. I mean, a big thing about music as well is uh, there's a, an element of gambling in it constantly. Uh, because you don't know how people are going to react to music or how big you're going to get, or, you know, what kind of impact a piece of music you put out or wh whatever it is, uh, you can't actually predict anything for certain. Uh, obviously, that that <laughs> can have its its drawbacks at certain times, but it also means that, yeah, we're 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 kind of living on a wire. It's, it's forever interesting. Uh, and I don't think music will ever kind of lose that as well. 
so for someone like me who's a layman in in anything to do with the music industry what is your kind of what is a day-to-day role for a manager I'm sure I'm sure it completely changes every time you do <laughs> yeah. every day. But like, what what is your when you're representing artists? Like, what what are you doing? So so for me, the area that I like working in within artist management is I like working with newer artists. Uh, a big thing for me is helping develop them and taking them from a, a kind of very early stage and seeing them progress. Uh, so for me, that firstly means if I'm looking to take someone on. Uh, in a management sense, firstly, I like going out and, and scouting for new musicians. Uh, Liv and I are very lucky in terms of a couple of the music communities we actually keep in. People uh, are very, it's, it's a great place to go for word of mouth. People are very supportive there. So I've been turned on to some great musicians, literally from friends' recommendations, who I would have met those friends through friend recommendations. So it can roll like that, uh, which is great. So yeah, it, it, I guess it, and on day to day, once I've found an act and decided to start working with them, uh, what I tend to do firstly is uh, I sit down with uh, the act and I first get them to go over why they're into music, uh, what kind of artists they think of themselves, where they want to take it, what kind of audiences they want to hit. Uh, f- for me, music is so fast paced and, and can have quite a short shelf life in terms of, uh, I guess, the average punter's eyes. But really, music is as long a term career as any other. And so, it's you know, you even get down to the nitty gritty with artists of you want to be making this kind of music to try and hit an audience rather than because you enjoy it. Let's say that track goes global, you know, gets you into the charts and you're suddenly getting headline slots at festivals off the back of a song that you didn't actually really enjoy making. You just made it for a purpose. If you do that for five years time, you're going to hate making music. Uh, And so going over different points like that really, really early, uh, it sounds quite trivial with an artist saying, okay, sit down. What kind of artist do you actually want to be? But you can lose yourself in the making it as an artist that you, you can actually forget to do that. So the f- firstly, I'll, we'll, we'll set out a plan of, OK, you know, why are you into music to start with? Uh, what kind of artists do you want to be in, in other people's eyes? What do you want to be respected for? Uh, you, can, you kind of get the core value of why they want to be an artist. Then from there, you can start to predict, OK, what kind of audiences we probably want to be, start cultivating, where we want to go with the live sound, what kind of presence you need to have online. Uh, day to day is different every single day just because there are so many different things to hit but so you you start to outline a plan of of what you want to do with this artist why you're involved with them and where you're going to start taking it and then once you start to get that uh, plotted you then start to slot things in around if that's looking to get on uh, certain artist tours that hit right audiences uh, starting to yeah kind of create a proper signature for yourself on different social media platforms uh, start to get the demos and then recorded music in line with the view of the artist that they they have of themselves uh yeah so that that changes week on week but as, as a kind of baseline that's how i tend to outline working with uh musicians that i get involved with that's brilliant i mean i i love that because i think that uh just saying you know the what i said before about managers coming into it from so many different ways i think that um you know this this podcast is about being honest and like full disclosure i let go of my management last year uh because it wasn't really working and i think that uh one of the problems was uh we hadn't really had that conversation and we had different ideas of what kind of artist that i was and was going to be and that is a really big Probably can be a really big problem mm. uh, because even if everyone's working really, really hard, if you're not actually working, if you're not go- going in the same direction, then that, work. that work mm. is is Completely. just kind of wasted. So, I think that's really fantastic, and I think that um, I mean you've worked with some really interesting artists. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how that's worked. 
Yeah, so definitely. So I'd, I've worked with a mix of artists who have both been signed to major labels, independent labels, or who are fully independent themselves. Um, and yeah, that, that's where it gets a bit more interesting. So one, one of the acts I worked with, uh, Kathy McGrath, who's now going on and doing so well. Uh, I first got introduced to her through, she did an Under the Apple Tree session when she was, I think, 17 years old. Uh, so I saw her as kind of, you know, the core raw talent. And then I actually was comparing a, a, a show at Cadogan Hall and I introduced Catherine on stage and it was the first live set she'd ever played. Wow. Uh, which, yeah, and that, this was way before I was managing her. So then when I moved to Instrumental and she'd actually just broken away from her old management setup, uh, that was a really nice slot in. But in terms of cutting my teeth, with the, that was my first kind of major act. Uh, she was signed to Warner Brothers major label. And so she was a quote unquote development act. So as well as me on management side, she had a team of multiple people at Warner who would be working on her audience development, artist development. So for managing an act that has a label team and a label presence, uh, that's very much about working out, working with the team. Uh, so we, we we used to have regular meetings on the point that we just went over where we all had this, a shared idea, which was agreed with Catherine. We, we were all working on, on to the same uh, goal of where we want to take her as an artist, which meant that then the dealings with how we did the workload, what we were doing to develop her, that worked really, really well. Uh, that was important because if, say, mine and, and the Warner team's views and vice versa were completely different, that probably would have been quite difficult to work around. Equally, if they were trying to imprint a vision on Catherine that she wasn't agreeing with, that wouldn't have worked either. So that was a really nice working setup because we we kind of outlined it in a, in a smarter way. Uh, and so then watching that grow, that, that in terms of uh, the music industry side, that kind of the more, I guess, mainstream crowd will see, getting new music Friday placements on on Spotify playlists, getting played on Radio 1 and Radio 2. Uh, that That's kind of the more romantic, how fast an artist can turn around vision that a lot of people have. You know, you see from, yeah, the 17-year-old girl that came into my dad's music studio and did a cover of Justin Bieber to, you know, playing a, playing a headline tour. It's amazing seeing that growth. And, and so working with an artist that, that, that was turning over so quickly, uh, you had a massive infrastructure and, and you know, the 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 funds and and all that kind of help that that goes with that that was great but it really put it in perspective also the fact that uh artists that that isn't their reality how much harder it is to work around that uh so an, another act i worked with is an artist called victoria canal uh who is an american artist i believe you you know her as well yes, don't you know, yeah she, she's absolutely brilliant and uh so we discovered her at instrumental through uh, a live video she'd done with a kind of mini orchestra from a bedroom in Amsterdam and, and brought her over and signed her. But so that was, that was, she was fully independent, uh, when, when we discovered her. And so working with an artist like that, who has, you know, just as much talent, but you, you see them in kind of, I guess, an earlier stage in terms of progressing in the music industry. It would, so those were my first two kind of main acts that I started managing. And it was fascinating because both of them had a great online presence, uh, you know, always helps having, having good amounts of followers and, you know, having a social media fan base that carries you. But also working with two acts, one that has the infrastructure of a global, one of the only three major labels out there versus one who, yeah, we're, we're kind of taking through independently, uh, really helped in terms of me coming to terms with, I was only 21 when I first moved up to London and joined Instrumental. So it was as much, I guess, a growing curve for me as it was for for the artists. And so then when that breaks down into then how you start working with them, you then tend to get into the scene of the music industry in London, you start meeting different people at different companies and you, then you start to have to work out the human element of the music industry. 
uh, who speaks and doesn't do, who, who does with, with little words, uh, who, who are genuinely into the music and who you genuinely enjoy dealing with uh, versus, you know, people who you might not as much. That was a little taster of our interview with Dylan Myersko-Harris. If you want to hear the whole thing, you can still find it anywhere you get your podcasts. The next person we interviewed in series one was Sabrina Bartlett, who is an actor. Here is a little taster of that. And again, if you want to hear the whole thing, you can still find it anywhere you get your podcasts. And what made you choose to, to accept the, the place? Well, mostly because it offered, it wasn't just, uh, you know, one trick pony, all I do is act, that's all I do. It Also, I think the fact that I'd come from somewhere where I had had, like it or not, I had had all this dance training and also I'd had some singing training as well. And it was the one place that offered um, an education, a training in all three and I think that is really important as an actor because, you know, more and more so you get auditions where it asks if you if you can sing or if you play an instrument, particularly with theatre. And whether you're the lead or supporting or ensemble, it's so useful if you have another skill set. And I have to say, being very honest at the time, that was mostly what everyone else told me. It wasn't something that I as 18 year old Sabs went, oh, it's very important. I should you know have all three it was more like my teachers were very anxious to make sure they said look you've trained all this time you can dance you can move you can also sing why don't why not go somewhere where and you know let's be honest I was so concentrated on being an actor I don't think actually I would have had the dedication to have gone and taken ballet classes and music lessons outside of going to a school and and I think GSA particularly has a very high level of that type of training the singing is exceptional I think we had some amazing dance teachers so for me that was and also it's just something kind of wonderful. I remember some of the exercises just feeling, I'm sure you two have felt it as well. There was a real, um, I felt there's a wonderful kind of, right, it was like a ripe garden full of different like apples and blackberries. And we were all in this room creating all this stuff. And I just, I felt good. I felt like I liked it. I felt like there was a nice kind of, I felt, I, I didn't feel like I was on show. I felt like I was proud to perform and I felt, no, I felt I, like I belonged. It was great. I was excited. And even it was really cheesy. But even when I had got the the, um, the place and in the summer waiting until we could go in the autumn, I remember I remember always thinking about like how high the ceilings were and the smell of the paint and the cafe and thinking, oh, my God, I can't believe I get to go to this place. It's so beautiful and all these interesting people and doing looking at Shakespeare and reading. And I, I just I was so you know turned on by the idea of it all that was also a big part of me that, that loved the kind of the building and everything and I coach some people that want to go to drama school as well and I know that when you're when you're looking at it from a, an outside point of view you're thinking uh the big names you know I, I just I want to have a big name behind me and I want to train at this particular school but I think it is so important to to understand if the the feeling if it sparks something in you when you're at the build I felt exactly yeah. the same with the building and and the, the the kinds of people that I was meeting were they my kinds of people? Do you think that's something that you've kind of taken on board more as you've learned through the industry as well? Kind of as you've gone mm. through to kind of be really true to what's kind of serving you and and whether you're just whether you're feeling like you should be doing something or whether it's that you're doing the things that you want to be doing because that what kind of gives you that buzz? Yeah, I mean, I find it's a constant actually a constant struggle 
really to I find it particularly difficult on sets on TV sets to be who I am and it's very difficult this is kind of I've often heard the phrase use um nothing is people aren't real nothing is real on on set you, you you're not getting the real version of people of themselves and I think what I've struggled with is what is myself in that situation you know I, I have this I, I call it this thing it's like this um inferior inferiority complex I never feel that I'm equal I always feel that gosh I can't believe I've got the job and I'm working with people especially if they're quite big names I always do myself down or I always feel it's really hard just to be with where I'm at with the setting I have with the profile I have minimum or maximum in that situation with whoever I'm working with it always feels like I, I find it I find it really hard to find my clarity of being really what I actually am and I am very clumsy I am quite goofy I'm I find it really hard sometimes to express myself or to um, sometimes even just to get the words out and I overcompensate and I, I just wish sometimes it's a, it, it, it's a bit of a panic and especially with other people of such high caliber who either sometimes you know in terms of ego you want to impress them or you want to get a rapport or you you just want to be liked and you want to do a good job and that gets a bit lost sometimes so I find I'm, I'm still working on it but um, for me sometimes these situations are really hard just to remain true to who I am and that is you know I'm I haven't got it figured out at all I'm I'm trying. I'm trying a new thing of where I'm trying really hard this year, 2019, to be much more, much more honest and being where I'm at. Whether that's being a bit tired and not having a big smile always available to people, or whether that's um, speaking up if something isn't right, or just being quiet and reading my book and and not feeling I have to always join in. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you know that's one of those things that we've talked about before that you kind of just, you have to learn it by by being in those uh situations you know you can you can tell people just be yourself you know just do mm. do what you need to do get your needs met but you have to have been through those situations where you try and please people and you try and be the perfect person you know try and be interesting um but I think you just have to you have to live through those years of, of trying yeah. to to please people yeah definitely what were the first sort of experiences for you with meetings of high profile people that you wanted to to impress like yeah. do you remember early yes very much so. my first I'd say my first big gig where I've been on it was like the the biggest experience I'd had to date was when I got um an episode of Doctor Who where it was a episode where the TARDIS goes back in time to Robin Hood and I was playing Maid Marian and um I had all these scenes with the Doctor who was played by Peter Cabaldi at the time and there was also Jenna Coleman, who actually, weirdly enough, I'm working with on the moment on Victoria. And then there was Tom Riley, who is playing Robin Hood. And these guys are like creme de la creme, amazing actors. Um, Peter Cabaldi is obviously an absolute magician, genius. He's brilliant. Jenna, Tom, they're, they're both exceptional actors. And um, I remember firstly being completely awed by the the level of beauty in terms of where we were filming and the effects, special effects, the TARDIS. It was, it was absolutely, it was like walking onto, I don't know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It's like walking into the factory and seeing all these beautiful things. And I'd never been around such a huge crew as well. And 
so many different departments and the costume had been made specially for my size and for my body and I've never had someone make clothes for me like that ever and you know there was a there was a reading there's a read through there's a you know someone checking my lines and someone asking if I wanted a cup of tea and I was so overwhelmed I was like god is this how it works this is really how you know and every everywhere you go there's someone that's you know almost doing a strange sort of com- commentary like you know um you know Sprina walking's trailer Sprina and trailer lunch give me Sprina it's like big brother <laughs> following you around yes, exactly day. and it's so it's so strange and you feel grateful also a bit out of place and um and you know I did feel very inferior compared to these other actors I mean they'd all go to their trailers and I'd say actually I'm I don't want to go to my trailer I'd rather is it okay if I stay and watch and everyone thought I was really weird wanting to stay and watch uh, going, you know, well, you know, it's it's break time, so you can go and listen to your iPod or go and have lunch. And I'd be like, no, this is so thrilling. I want to watch and I want to understand how it works. And they all thought I was absolutely mad. I learned a lot on that job. And also, you know, I have to say I was just, I was heavily inspired by, I think, Peter Cabaldi. I was lucky enough to have some one-on-one scenes with him. And um, he was the most generous man. He was so kind. And he really made sure I was comfortable. He asked me about my background, what I was up to. He 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 put me completely at ease. But then when it came to rehearsing the scene, I almost couldn't believe it. It was it was like I was I I've got all my lines. So I was just watching him and I was just I couldn't believe it. It was like this um creature, but also kind of like this oh, I don't know, it was just it was extraordinary and he just, his thoughts Almost, there was no work, it was effortless. It was like watching a breathing, living creature moving, conducting this magic around him. And I just forgot all my lines. <laughs> I was gobsmacked. Um, so that was, for me, that was a, a whirlwind first job. And then off that, um, I, I, I then was lucky enough to get a um, a part in this thing called The Passing Bells, which was, um, it was a memorial, it was basically marking 100 years since the First World War. And it was a big drama uh with the German side um, and the English side kind of pitted together and I was playing the romantic lead to Jack Loudon's character who was playing like a soldier in the First World War going away and we were, we were sort of the German side and then they had the English side in comparison to that and um, that was again a bit of a whirlwind getting that because it was again that was a, a big job. I probably shouldn't have got that job because I wasn't um, at all equipped for it whatsoever. I'd done nothing to get that job. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because when you're when you're dreaming of being an actor or whatever it is you want to go into when you're younger, you just see this kind of. I know I certainly did. You see the the beautiful version of it where you get to go and be on a TV set or a film yeah. set, or you get to record with amazing people. And there's actually it's really interesting hearing about that. There must be some sort of pressure when you get to you suddenly are faced with working with people that have a whole load of experience yeah. or a big name or someone that you've looked up to while you've been, you know, watching them. Um, how how have you felt as you've kind of met all these people going yeah. through? Do are you starting to kind of relax and and feel your own worth in that situation, or or yeah. do you are you still coming up against? Yeah. Um, are you st- are you still feeling that pressure? Um, yeah, definitely. I don't think it'll ever go away. I think I'm always going to feel that I need to work harder than anyone. Really, I always I just every time I get a job, I always question if I'll ever work again, ever. I always think, God, I can't believe I'm here. Will I have this? Will, will this ever happen? And every time I'm ever rewarded or given a job, I always think, oh, my Lord, I can't believe it. Like, I need to, I don't know. And, and the same with people as well. I think it's a constant struggle to, 
I don't know why it's such a struggle, but I always, yeah, I think it's an inferiority complex. Like people are always so extraordinary or talented and, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a name. I'm, I have worked, but, you know, being with, being with big names, like when I did Game of Thrones, that was also quite hard because, the, you know, working with, uh, Maisie Williams and um, all the other members of the cast, particularly Maisie because of the part I had was more to do with her character at the time. And, you know, these big names and they were all very welcoming, but it's also so, so you know, you're trapped into the situation where people are, you know, their, their lifestyles are so different and their reality is so different and they're in something so huge and then you get to be a small part of it in some way and you can't help but feel um, different. You can't help but feel that. And I, I am working on it. And I do feel, you know, I feel a lot more now that I, I can back my goods a bit more. I, I know that I do have something to offer. And also, you know, I just, I would love the process always to be as enjoyable and as open as possible. And, you know, I know it sounds kind of cheesy, but it's so lovely to make friends. See these opportunities as ways collecting wonderful friendships. And also, we all just want to be good. Everybody just wants to be the best they can be. You want to get the best shot. You want the best performances and um, everybody secretly, I think what I'm learning more so is everybody deep down has their worries or their past and their fears, their, their demons on their shoulders and scenes. And sometimes that translates into a lot of vulnerability or sometimes there's a bit of a, um, a guard up. Sometimes there's a source of conflict or even, you know, concentrated sexual energy towards people. And it comes out in all sorts of ways and everybody this is one thing I'll say I've definitely learned is that everybody is kind of not being truly themselves really in that environment. It's very difficult to be, to completely be yourself. So being okay with that, I think is something that I'm learning. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you've, you've had some experiences that are quite um, contrasting in terms of, you know, some people listening are probably going to be like, oh my God, Game of Thrones, you know, it's the biggest show in the world, arguably. And you had a, so you were in one episode. Yeah. But it was a really, really important role. So the pressure is kind of on because you get this one yeah. chance to tell a really, really important part of the story. Um, so so how does that differ from, you know, when, which we will probably get onto, you get a regular, you know, yeah. you become a regular on a show. Like, do you feel like there are different types of pressures? Like which one is kind of, mm. which one is the most sort of, oh my God, this is my responsibility now. Like, do you yeah. feel with, uh, you know, with having one episode to do it, it's like, okay, well, I, I can't go back and do it again if they, yeah. I I would say um, for me, the pressure has definitely been more when I've been playing a series regular in a, in, in a job because if they're not enjoying or liking what you're bringing to the to the part they can um write you out of it or they can diminish the character's role in the series whereas if you're bought in to do something uh quite punchy you know with with, with playing the, dis the disguise that aria stark um, disguise find that really hard to pronounce aria stark disguise <laughs> very hard to pronounce. sorry about that diction um with, with that i was i was bought in with a very certain flavor we, I'd gone into the audition not knowing what I was auditioning for and there were about I don't know there was so many girls there we all had different hair colours different skin colours different eye colours different... Thank you for listening to these tasters and if you want to hear the whole thing of either of these interviews they are both available in series one of My Amazing Mess which is still available wherever you get your podcasts. 
we're really excited to be able to announce that we will be doing our very first live messy musing over on Instagram on Friday the 1st of May at 5pm UK time. We know that lots of our listeners are listening in from all over the world. So if you don't already follow us on Instagram, it's myamazing.mess. Click the follow button and then you'll be able to see when we go live. We'd love to hear from you, hear your questions. And Liv and I will be, of course, talking from our different homes about how creatives and how all of us in general are just finding the lockdown and going through this bizarre thing that we're all all going through together. So we hope it'll be a really big community feel and we'd love to be able to hear from some of our listeners. So join us over there on Friday the 1st of May at 5pm UK time and we look forward to seeing you there. Thank you.